I think sometimes we just need a reminder that we can do this. You know, we, we sometimes uh, get so overwhelmed by some of the challenges that are before us that we, we, we start to develop the sense like, I can't do this. Sometimes that happens in some household projects you're working on. Sometimes it can be on things that are a little larger than that, but I think certainly that happens in relationship to our faith. We get to a place and we hear some of the things that God's saying to us and, and we're like, wow, that's hard. Or that's a lot. Or I'm not sure I can, I can get to that place. I mean, I, just, just think about some of the words that we've been hearing from God in our series that I've entitled Throwbacks, where we're kind of looking back at some of the major messages that God's been given to us. I mean, a few weeks ago, we looked at a message related to the Great Commission, how God has sent His church into the world to go in His name to make disciples of all nations. And the implication that we get is, is that this is what's on God's heart. And if that's not on our heart, then we're never going to experience God's best. Period. It's like being in a marriage and... One spouse wants one thing, and one spouse wants something totally different. You're just never going to be on the same page. You're not going to have a great relationship. If God's heart is to reach people, and ours is just to kind of get from God what we can get to make ourselves feel better, our spiritual condition is going to stink. And some of us are like, wow, that's pretty hard. Or we think about Jesus as teacher, not just as redeemer, as Lord, but as teacher, and understand that 70% of the stuff that he taught to us it's application-based, meaning that we're supposed to do something about it. It's like, I don't know if I can do that. And, and so I want to share a word to you, with you today as we kind of conclude our journey through these throwback series that you really can do this. Some of you are saying, you know what, I, I'm in a, in a difficult circumstance at work or maybe at home or you're dealing with health issues or family issues or whatever and it, and it just seems totally overwhelming and you, and you don't think you can be in a place where you can, can really do what it is that you think God needs and wants for you to do. We, some of you are, are struggling to, to have things you, God's speaking to you about changing in your character and your priorities and your values or your ethics or behavior or whatever and it's, and it's just so hard to change and you're wondering, I don't know if I can do this. And God has this incredible word to say to us, you can do this. And so I, I want to use probably one of the, the greatest figures in the Old Testament that you don't know anything about. And that's a guy by the name of Josiah. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. 2 Chronicles chapter 34. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, we're going to be on page 390, flowing over to 391. And even on to 392, okay? Because I'm going to spend actually a number of minutes reading this whole chapter to us. Now, you're going to quickly recognize that Josiah is the king. And you're saying, oh, come on. I mean, he's got all the authority, right? And so his job is easy. How can it be that, that he can compare to me in terms of the challenge of really bad? Because he's got everything. He's got everybody at his disposal. Well, let, let's do a little... Let's, let's, let's paint the picture of where Josiah is, all right? First of all, when Josiah comes to the throne, and he does so in 640 B.C., he's eight years old. Now, could you imagine being like the prime minister of Judah in that period of time, and you come to the king and say, well, what do you want us to do? And he's like, let's have hot dogs for dinner. 
You know what I mean? And the kid's eight years old, and he's in charge of the people, you know? He's supposed to be the spiritual and the political leader of the nation at that time. That's a pretty hard job. At this point in time, the nation of Israel has had a king for almost 400 years. Samuel had anointed Saul to be the first king of the nation of Israel in about 1020 B.C. So about 400 years later, in 640 B.C., Josiah comes to the throne. Looking at our own U.S. history, it's like the pilgrims arriving. That's when they had their first king. 620, 640, right? 16, you know, 16, 1620. And now we're all up into the 21st century. 2014. It's been a long time they've had a king. The nation, originally Israel, has been separated into Israel and Judah for over 300 years. So going back just a little bit before the Revolutionary War, they've been separated as two kingdoms. That happened, if you remember, after Solomon. In 931 B.C., the nation split. The northern ten tribes went off to become the nation of Israel, and the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stayed together, and they formed what the Bible refers to as the nation of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel has been gone for 80 years into exile. 80 years they've been gone. You know, the Syrians came in in 722 B.C., if I remember my history right, and, 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 and being used of God, they inflicted God's judgment on the northern kingdom. The ten tribes had been taken away, dispersed, never to be heard from again. That would take us back to what? In our U.S. history between the First and Second World War, right? The 1930s. Been a long time that Judah, this little nation, has been sitting there all by itself, okay? Judah, they could really see the handwriting on the wall, Okay? meaning that they were very vulnerable. And in fact, within 25 years after the death of Josiah, the nation of Judah is going to be taken off into exile. In fact, he's going to die in about 609 B.C. And within five years of that period of time, Daniel and his friends are going to be taken off to Babylon as a part of the beginning of the exile. It's tumultuous time. It's not a good time to be the king of a tiny nation. On top of that, Israel has not had a godly king for over 60 years, except for one little blip in the screen at the end of Manasseh's life. Hezekiah, several generations before, had been a godly king. Manasseh had come in. King Manasseh, you can read about him in chapter 32 of, uh, 33 of, of 2 Chronicles. He comes in and he does evil in the sight of the Lord his entire life. He's God sends him into judgment. He's, they says he literally was, he was uh, corralled with hooks. They put him in bondage. They take him off to Assyria. He's sitting in a cell. He's in his 60s. He cries out to God in humility and repents for all of the evil that he has done. And God allows him to return to his reign for just a brief period of time before he dies. Besides that, everything has been corrupt spiritually the whole journey. On top of that, the book of the law, Genesis to Deuteronomy, the heart and soul of what it means to be the people of God, had not been read nor even seen for over 50 years. You talk about a country that was spiritually off the rails, it was Judah. 
Imagine if, you know, we're, we're, you know, if we're trying, quote-unquote, to be a Christian church, and yet we, we hadn't even read the Scriptures for over 50 years. I mean, they, they were off the rails, okay? <laughs> off the rails. And on top of that, the occasion for Josiah's coming to the throne is the fact that his father, who's only 24, who had Josiah when he was 16, who's only 24, gets assassinated by the court. And then the people assassinate the court, and then Josiah is made the king when he's eight years old. How many of you would love to have his job, given all that stuff? I mean, it's just crazy. You know, I mean, probably what happened with Amon there is that there were there were those in the court who favored aligning themselves with the strongest nation of the day, which was Assyria. There were others who were saying, let's just seek God and we'll follow God's ways. And, and there was a division between the two. Other, some of them were leaning towards Egypt. We should align ourselves to Egypt. And he just got in the midst of all of that. Then the people had a rebellion, killed all those guys. And then they take this eight-year-old and they put him on the throne. Now, Josiah had some challenges ahead of him. And I think as we look at his life, and I'm going to read all of chapter 34 for us, and so I think there are some great lessons that we can learn about how it is that we really can do this life that God's called us to do before him in Jesus Christ. So let's start with verse 1 of chapter 34. It'd be great to just follow along. You can laugh at the way I pronounce some of these words as we go. Some of these names are really, anyways, interesting stuff. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the Lord's eyes and walked in the ways of his ancestors, David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, so now he's 16, he's at the ripe, old, mature, wise age of 16, while he was still a youth, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor, David. And in his 12th year, so now he's the ripe old age of 20, not even up to drinking age yet. In the ripe old age of 20, he began to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherah poles, the carved images, and the cast images. What had really become dominant in the land is that the, the people basically became like everybody else around them, and they engaged in pagan worship. And the thing that was most important to them was for their fields to be fertile and for their sheep and their cows and et cetera to be fertile. And so they, they tapped into the fertility cults that were around them, and that was marked by the, ba the bales and the Asherah poles and the carved images and the cast images. And he comes in, and, and he knows that that's not right. He understands that God is the creator of all, and he begins to put all that aside. So then in verse 4, then in his presence, the altars of the bales were turned, torn down. And the incense altars that were above them he chopped down. The Asherah poles, the carved images, and the cast images he shattered, crushed to dust, and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars. So he cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And I want you to notice that it was in his presence. He didn't sit in his throne room playing video games and say, hey, you guys go do this. He went out and he was a part of it and he identified with it. He made sure it got done. He was all in. It says in verse 6, he did the same in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, and on their surrounding mountain shrines. So this really is all of the geographical area that was the promised land where the 12 tribes originally set. 
You know, uh, Simeon is, is to the south, so if you're looking at a map and you know the Dead Sea is kind of down here southwest of, of Jerusalem, southeast, sorry, of Jerusalem, Simeon was just to the west of that, was the southernmost tip of the nation of Israel. He, he, he's down there and he's cleansing the, the, that area. Naphtali is far as you can go in the north. From Naphtali, you can see the, the nation of Lebanon. You can see the nation of Syria. He's up in the, the headwaters where, um, that feed the Sea of Galilee. He's, he's cleansing that. He's, he's cleansing the other side of the Sea of Galilee, what's known as the Golan Heights, which is close to Syria. And the area down below that, that today is a part of modern-day Jordan. He's cleansing all of that. He's tearing down the altars, it says in verse 7. And he smashed the Asherah poles and the carved images to powder. And he chopped, chopped down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. And then he returned to Jerusalem. Now, now listen, we might say, well, you know, he's the king. He can do whatever he wants. This doesn't mean the people like this. You know? I mean, imagine, you know, that, that our government finally decided, you know what, we're just way all too fat. And they just came through and started taking the refrigerators out of our house. You know, I mean, they might have the power to do that, especially if they have enough people with them, you know, enough weapons with them. That doesn't mean, that's exactly what's going on. These people are saying, you know what, we know where you live. And when our crops don't come in next year because we didn't wash up, uh, worship Baal, we're going to come looking for you. When our, when our cows don't have healthy calves, when our goats don't produce, when our sheep don't bear the wages, we're going to come looking for you. Because we didn't say our prayers to the, to the Asherah poles. I mean, there's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of challenge in the midst of this. In the 18th year of his reign, verse 8, he's 26 now, right? In the 18th year of his reign, in order to cleanse the land and the temple, Josiah sent Saphon, son of Azaliah, along with Messiah, Messiah, the governor of the city, and the recorder Joah, son of Jehoaz, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. Why can't they all just be named Moses? It'd just be a lot easier to do all this, right? So they went to Hilkiah, the high priest, and they gave him the money brought into God's temple. The Levites and the door collectors, doorkeepers, had collected money from Manasseh and Ephraim and from the entire remnant of the Israel. That was they had gone through the land collecting money to restore the temple. From all Judah, Benjamin, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they put it into the hands of those doing the work. The, the, the temple had really been altered. Certain buildings had been torn down. The, the, the altar had been torn down because they were doing all kinds of pagan worship up there. So they had all multiple altars and etc. So it's been really changed. And so he puts his heart to put the house of God right. So they put it into the hands of those doing the work and those who oversaw the Lord's temple. They in turn gave it to the workmen who were working in the Lord's temple to repair and to restore the temple. And they gave it to the carpenters and the builders, and they used it to buy their supplies, the quarried stone and the timbers for joining and to making beams and for the buildings that Judah's kings had destroyed. The men were doing the work with integrity. And so they worked through all the different levels. I'll pick up with verse 14. When they had brought out the money that had been deposited in the Lord's temple, Hilkiah, the high priest, found the book of the law of the Lord written by the hand of Moses. Consequently, Hilkiah told Saphon, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. And he gave it to Saphon. Saphon took the book to the king. 
So he gave a report. Your servants are doing all that was placed in their hands. They have emptied out the money that was found in the Lord's temple, put it into the hands of the overseers, and all the work's going right. He gives them a progress report. Then Saphon, the court secretary, the cold king, told the king, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. And Saphon read it in the presence of the king. Now you wonder how long that took. How, how long would it take for you to start in Genesis 1-1 and go through the end of Deuteronomy? It's a good read, right? But when the king heard the words of the law, it says he tore his clothes. It was a sign of grief, a sign of humility before God. Then he commanded Hilkiah, this other guy by the name of Ahikim, son of Saphon, Abdon, son of Micah, Saphon, the court secretary, and the king's servant, Isaiah, he said, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for those remaining in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that was found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord in order to do everything written in his book. And I got to tell you, I can't imagine that Josiah isn't thinking in the back of his mind, what does this mean for my kingship? I mean, think about all the challenges, all the conflict, all the... What does this mean for my kingship? So Hilkiah and those who were with him went to the prophetess Huldah, the wife of Shalom, Solom, the son of Tokath, son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. And they spoke with her about this. So she said to him, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. Say to the man who sent you to me. In other words, go tell the king. This is what the Lord says. I'm about to bring disaster on this place and on its inhabitants, fulfilling all the curses written in the book that they have read in the presence of the king of Judah. Because they've abandoned me. They've burned incense to other gods in order to provoke me with all the works of their hands. My wrath will be poured out on this place. It will not be quenched. And you can think about the messengers thinking, I'm not looking forward to telling the king this, right? My wrath is going to be poured out on this place, and it will not be quenched. But say this to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord of God of Israel says. As for the words that you heard, because your heart was tender, you humbled yourself before God when you heard his word against this place and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and you wept before me, I myself have heard. Now, this is the Lord speaking. I will indeed gather you to your fathers and you'll be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster that I am bringing on this place and on its inhabitants. Then they went and reported to the king. So the king, he sent messengers and he gathered all the elders of Judah in Jerusalem together. Then the king went up to the Lord's temple with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, as well as the priests and all the Levites and all the people from great to small. In other words, there's a huge assembly at the temple. And he read in their hearing all the words of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. In other words, he read the, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law, the heart and soul of what it meant to walk with God to the, to the Old Testament people. Next, the king stood at his post, and he made a covenant in the Lord's presence to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments. He went first. He set the example. He made the commitment. And he made the commitment to keep his commandments, his decrees, and his statutes with all his heart, with all his soul, in order to carry out the words of the covenant written in the book. 
Then he had all those present in Jerusalem and Benjamin enter the covenant. So all the inhabitants of Jerusalem carried out the covenant of God, the God of their ancestors. You see the power of example there. So Josiah removed all, everything that was detestable from all the lands belonging to the Israelites and required all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord their God. And throughout his reign, they did not turn aside from following the Lord's God, Lord God of their ancestors. Now, chapter 35 is fascinating because for the first time, probably in, in, in over 50 years, maybe closer to 100 years, they actually celebrate the Passover. The recognition or the remembrance of God passing over the Israelites when he brought them out of Egypt on the night on the final pl- of the final plague, the plague of death. Symbol of that redemption. It, 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 and they celebrate it and they say it's the greatest celebration of the Passover since the days of Samuel. That's 400 years ago. Now, what can we learn from Josiah about what does it take for us to do it? So that we can walk out of this place knowing, you know what, I can do this. I, I can do this. I can be the person that God's called me to be. I can serve the way God's called me. So what is it going to take to do that? And, and I think I've created the case that Josiah's job was not easy. Everybody agree? I mean, this was, this was not a puppet job, right? You know, th- this was a tough role that he had. And, and here's some things that we can embrace. First of all, the first step of it is, in some ways, is literally just to stop making excuses. In Josiah's case, he could have said, hey, I'm too young. You know, just bring me the video games. Let somebody else make all the decisions. I'm just a kid. Even by the time he started making all the reforms, he's, he's only 20. He doesn't even have any gray hairs on his head yet, right? And, it, and there's lots of times when you and I can just say, you know what? I just can't do that right now. I, I got young kids. They take up all my time. You know, I, I'm in the core of my career, and I can see my second job, trying to get promoted. I just don't have any time. You know? Or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm too young, or I'm too old. You know, we, we just have all kinds of reasons why we can't do, why this isn't the right time to expend the effort to be the person that God's called us to be. And some of that is you just got to stop doing that. You just got to stop doing that. His grandfather, Manasseh, you know, he, he, he's already lived a lifetime of rebellion against God, and all he's got left is just a few months, and he gives his heart to God, and he makes some changes. You've got to come to the point where we just stop making excuses. We, 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 we get to that place where we can say, well, this is why I can't do that right now. And we just got to push that aside. I've got to tell you, there will never be a time when we'll stop doing that. There will always be a reason why we're too distracted, too stressed, too spent, too spread too thin, too many issues or challenges, it's always going to be there. I don't care what, how old you are, what circumstances you're in, how much money you're making, no matter what the story is. There's always going to be a reason. And some of that is if we're going to be the people God wants us to be, if we're going to be able to do it, we're just going to say, you know what, that's not really relevant. We're going to stop making excuses. The second thing I want you to see is that we, we need to understand the power that is released when we make commitment and we follow it up with action. We, we live in a generation where I think we sometimes are just satisfied with making the commitment. We kind of 
we hear something from God and we say, you know, that's right and I agree with that, etc. But then somehow between the altar and the door, and some of you know that song, right? That we, we're, we're, you know, we, we listen, we hear, so I know this is what I should do, but sometimes between here and the parking lot, life kind of crashes in and it separates the two things out and we never follow through with any action in our lives. Look what, look what Josiah does. He, he makes a commitment. He stands in public and says, this is what I'm going to do. And then he follows it up with action. He stands and watches and participates in tearing down the altars to Baal, to cutting down the Asherah poles, to seeing them burned up. He travels through the nation. He's he's a part of the action. He follows through with action. And there's a place in which you and I just need to draw a line in the sand and say, you know what, I'm going to be different, and then we follow it through with action. There, there, There is this wonderful power of God that's released in our lives when we make the choice, we communicate the commitment, and then we follow through in action. And if we don't do those things, it's going to be really hard to do it. Just to be able to do it. Third thing. It's impossible to read 2 Chronicles chapter 34. It's, it's impossible to understand the life of Josiah and not understand the role that the Word of God played in his life. The thing that shaped it The thing that drove it, the thing that directed it, was the Word of God. The Scripture tells us that he was humble before the Word of God. That he was teachable before the Word of God. He tore his clothes in response to the Word of God. I don't know if I can say it any more clearly than this. And I don't care who you are and what your learning style is or anything else. if, If we don't get into the Word of God we're not going to be able to do it. Can't put it in any way. If you think, if you're trying to live a victorious, life-changing journey of faith in Christ without being in the Scriptures, it's just never going to happen. Just not. It was the Word of God and His response to the Word of God that guided the fact that Josiah was a person who shaped and changed the spiritual direction of a nation. He was a guy who did it. And he did it because he was responding to God's word. And, and you know, whether you have to listen to it on a CD or whatever, podcasts or whatever, get it off of Twitter or whatever you have to do to, if we're not getting the word of God into our lives, we're not going to be able to do it. You and I have to embrace the role that the word of God plays and be in the people that God's called us to be. The, The last thing I want you to see is that in order to, to do this, is that you've got to remain teachable. You, you just have to remain teachable. You know, Josiah could have said, you know what, hey, listen, I've cleaned up Jerusalem. That's enough, right? God should be happy with that. All right, all right. Well, now I'll clean up the nation. We'll go from Simeon all the way to Naphtali. We'll go from the Mediterranean to the other side of the Jordan River. That should be enough, right? Oh, no, now I'll, let's, let's get the temple right. Let's rebuild the temple. When that's all done, then yeah, you read the word, word of God and, and, he, and he says, you know what? Let's step back in and have this covenant renewing experience. And then it's from there, it's on to the Passover. He's continually growing and shaping and moving forward. There's some of us who want to say, you know what? I've come far enough, God. You should just be happy I got here. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? We get to a place where we, we, you know what, I changed this part of my life. You know, I don't swear like I used to, but don't make me deal with this part. You know, and, and in order to be the people that we really can do it, we have to be people who remain teachable. So we need to be focused not on how far we've come. We need to rejoice in how much further we can go as we walk with God. So my question for us today is, what is it that is your challenge spiritually? What's the challenge that's before you spiritually? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a ministry that God's calling you to take on or to be a part of. Maybe it's some spiritual disciplines. What is the challenge? And are we really prepared to be the people who can do it as we walk with God? Let's pray together. God, I want to give you thanks that you didn't give me Josiah's job. To be stuck down into the middle of all of that intrigue and rebellion and change and etc. And to do so at such a young age. Well, thanks for the encouragement that his life is to us. That if we'll just do the same things that he did. Just listen to you. Respond to you. Obey you. And just keep doing so. You're going to do marvelous things. God, thank you for the promise that we have from your word that through Christ who strengthens us, we can do all things that you ask of us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.